Hello, well, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus. And in today's video, we're gonna ask the question, has the church in the Western world lost the plot a little bit? Stick around, let's find out. Well, hey guys, my name's Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church in beautiful Powell River, British Columbia, Canada. And we're just so glad that you're with us. Uh, as you can see, I am wearing my poppy today. Uh, at the time of this recording, it's a Wednesday. Tomorrow in Canada, we have Remembrance Day. And it's a time of remembering uh, the sacrifices and the people who sacrificed so that we can have the life and the freedoms and the country and the um, ability to do what we do. And so we just want to just take a moment and just want to acknowledge uh, both those of the past and those currently as service men and women who continue to protect those freedoms, who continue to uh, fight and, and uh, stand and put their lives on the line for those ideals. And today, it's interesting, today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, some political things and and so it's just, I just feel like it's just an important thing. The fact that we can even do this, have the freedom and the, 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 the opportunity just to kind of talk freely and, and broadcast it everywhere. Um, it's just, we can't take this for granted, friends. So Lord, we just think and we remember and we... Um, thank you so much for those who laid down their lives for these ideals, for these freedoms, for this way of life that we um, have had the honor and the privilege to live. And God, we pray for those currently who are also uh, servicemen and women around the world and here at home. We pray, Lord, that your protection would be upon them, that you would be with them, that, Lord Jesus, you would be revealed to them, each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to be jumping into, um, I'm going to give you fair warning. This might be a little uncomfortable. Uh, we're going to be asking some hard questions. We're going to be looking at some hard things. And as we go through this moment in the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to have to ask some hard questions of ourselves. And so we are in a series called the Gospel of John. If you're new with us, we've been in this series for quite a while and we're about halfway through it. But we are in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn there? If you don't have a Bible, would you like a Bible? Visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible and you can get one right now today. Well, I'm a big football fan. In fact, as you can see, I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. And the funny thing about watching sports, especially, especially from home when you have instant replay, slow motion, you know, ultra high definition, all of the things, it can, it can become very, very easy to kind of put yourself in the place of the coach. You know what I'm talking about? Or in the place of the quarterback. Like, how did he not see that throw? And we become these like armchair quarterbacks or we become these kind of couch coaches. And it can be very easy to kind of second guess every decision that's, that's made and, and based on our own perspective and how it should be done and what, what should be done. But the, the reality is, we have spent zero time really thinking thoughtfully about the game plan, about the tape, about the offense and the defense of the other team, 
And coaches have done a lot of that. They have a perspective and an understanding of the game that goes beyond anything that we have. That's why they're getting paid the big bucks and we're sitting at home paying to watch it. And so there's just something that just it, it lulls you into this false sense of you knowing more than you actually do about sports. We've all been there. We've all been frustrated. We've all had moments of the emotions welling up because of a dumb play. Uh, I'm talking to you, Seattle. Last time we were at the Super Bowl and we threw that pass on the goal line. Anyway, I'm over it. We're good. But in John... <laughs> In John, we come to this moment that is going to just shift and change everything. And Jesus, Jesus is going to shift and change our perspective on, on who he is as the Messiah. And we, we need to come into alignment with his shift, with his perspective, with his understanding, because ours is limited. We're going to kind of explore that today. So yesterday in our text... Yesterday, Jesus was at a dinner party with his friends. He was at this quiet, intimate moment. Mary pulled out the nard and wiped his feet and did the whole anointing thing. And Martha was cooking dinner and serving. And Lazarus was hanging out at the table. And all of that was going on. Today is going to be so different. Today, we're going to see that Jesus is going to be going to Jerusalem. He's currently in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's going to be heading into Jerusalem. Now, what's significant about this is the last time he was in Jerusalem, he kind of revealed himself as the Messiah very publicly. But, but consider the way that he went. I don't know if you remember, if you've been following our series, you will remember. Um, the last time Jesus visited Jerusalem, he went quietly. He went in private. He went, you could even say covertly, into Jerusalem. This time is going to be very different. This time is going to be completely different. The last time he was there, he did a bunch of I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am living water. I am the light of the world. In Bethany, in the resurrection of Lazarus, he's declared, I am the resurrection and the life. And he's making these messianic claims about himself. And the Jewish authorities don't want any of it. They don't want to explore the possibility that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And so the last time he was in Jerusalem, they wanted to stone him. When he evaded that moment, they put out a warrant for his arrest. And so we see in John 10, uh, 39, it says, Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So this is the last time that he was in Jerusalem. Now, in contrast to that visit, this one is going to look very, very different. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. John chapter 12. We're going to just start verse 9. Let's just jump back to verse 9 real quick. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus, Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, the resurrection of Lazarus and the subsequent news of that miracle has now traveled kind of far and wide. There's a lot of buzz in the air about this news. 
And people want to see Jesus. And, and, and not only Jesus, they want to see Lazarus. They want to see kind of this proof of what Jesus did. Now, kind of in order to appreciate the climate of this moment, we have to understand that Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem has just boomed significantly. We are entering into the festival of unleavened bread or the Passover. And so many, many, many Jews would be coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In fact, a first century, or a first century uh, historian, Josephus, he kind of gives a number that a census was taking to show about 2.7 million people were in Jerusalem during the Passover. There's other writings that speak of uh, 256,000 lambs that were sacrificed during Passover. Now, why is that significant? Because there was a minimum of 10 people per lamb. And so if you do the math on that, we're at like 2.56 million people based on the sacrifices. So a crowd draws a crowd, right? We know this to be true. And the numbers involved in this moment, even if there were just a fraction of who is in Jerusalem, they would have been significant. Now, speaking of sports, speaking of football, one of my favorite places to go is what was formerly CenturyLink Field, is now Lumen Field. I love going to see the Seahawks in person. I usually don't like going to sporting events. I'm an introvert. I don't like crowds. But there's just something infectious and fun about going to Lumen Field to watch my beloved Seahawks. Now, here's the deal. Crowd mentality, it kind of changes you. Uh, so for those of you, you've never been to a live sporting event, professional sports, it's crazy. Uh, at, at, the, at the Seahawks game, you'll literally, every time that our, uh, our defense is on the field, we're literally standing and yelling at the top of our lungs to make as much noise as possible to disrupt the communication of the offense. Uh, I remember one time during playoffs, I was literally during a play jumping up and down with like 68,000 people, hugging strangers. Now, if you know me, ha, you know that I do not hug strangers. High-fiving the people around me, jumping up and down. Like, there's something about a crowd, the mentality of a crowd that causes you to behave in ways that you might not otherwise behave or, or to get caught up in a moment and not really be thoughtful about that moment. Now, why is this important? Well, because today as we discover and, and as we understand kind of the, the psychology of the crowd, um, we, we need to understand what's going on here. It's going to play a significant role in what happens in this moment, but also in another moment that's yet to come. Now, now the hype, the excitement, the rumors, the story of resurrection flowing through the crowd like water. Those who would witness it are telling everybody that they know because this is the news of the day. I, I know I'd be sharing if I witnessed the resurrection of someone, I'd be sharing that news. And so can you, can you feel kind of this groundswell, this momentum building, this buzz all around? In fact, the religious rulers are, are realizing that they're losing the popular vote here. You know, the court of public opinion is turning towards Jesus, even though they have a warrant out for his arrest. Uh, it actually causes them to kind of start to conspire to kill Lazarus as well, because Lazarus is a sign. He represents the sign 
of the power of Jesus in this moment. Now, where, where Jesus had once gone into Jerusalem in secret, he's now going in with all eyes on him. And verse 13 kind of describes the scene of what's going on. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, to understand the cultural nuance of this moment, you have to know that Israel is under Roman occupation at this time. That This moment is, is more than just a celebration of a Messiah. It's an outlet of, of rage towards their oppressors. You know, the, the Roman general Pompey had captured Jerusalem back in 63 BC. Now, the political maneuvering of Herod the Great, you know, Rome's puppet king in the region, had kept the political uprisings of the Jewish people at bay. And, and so the sting of this occupation and rule was fresh in the hearts and minds of this generation of Jews in the first century. And we can kind of see it growing, this, this, this idea of a Messiah, this idea of rage, this idea of anger kind of growing in size and boldness in this moment. It's very quickly becoming this nationalistic movement and moment in first century Jerusalem. The word Hosanna literally means save now, or within a liturgical kind of language of the day, save we pray. And then this moment has all the underpinnings of a nationalistic, political, populist movement with Jesus at the center. And in this climate of anger, tension, and hate, the people are looking for a particular kind of Messiah, one who will save them, both socially but also politically. Friends, we have something to learn from this crowd because of the climate of today. We have something to learn from this crowd of the first century. Now, I'm sure it's always kind of been there. But I feel like over the last decade, we've, we've kind of seen this, this ideological kind of idea permeate and infiltrate the theology of the Christian faith in the West. Um, this brand of, of nationalistic evangelicalism. As a Canadian, we see it mostly in the States, but... As a Canadian, I'm really surprised about how much it has infiltrated even the church in Canada. This groundswell of, of, of angry, hurt, disenfranchised Christians whose, whose perspective has become so kind of closed and shallow and insular that, that we're in danger of seeing Jesus as a, as a means to an end in freeing us socially and politically. It's, it's funny because we, we make fun of, of particular leanings within our culture and within this cultural moment who are pursuing and chasing a utopia. And it's kind of ironic that sometimes we do that because I would find that evangelical Christians are acting as though we are mourning, we are mourning and grieving the loss of a, of a utopia. Right? Like we say things like, oh, like... Things are not what they used to be. 
or, or, or we want to pursue and, and, and legislate and come back to the way things used to be when, when Christianity was more ex, ex, accepted and more mainstream within our culture and we're reacting like we've lost utopia. But friends, that wasn't utopia. That was a broken moment within a broken world that is still looking for that final return to Eden that only Jesus is going to bring us to. What are we doing? What are we so angry about? Why is there so much angst within the evangelical Christians of the West? Jesus is going to teach us something about this. Friends, the, the way it used to be within the Western world is gone. Like, grieve it, absolutely, mourn it, mourn the loss, but don't get angry. Don't start clawing and scraping for this return to what was not the original intention, is not a utopia that we've lost. It's gone. Those days are gone. It's going to continue to erode. So the question is, what is the Christian response in the climate that we find ourselves in now? If history and the scriptures has taught us anything, is that these are moments, these are cultural moments that are going to continue to come, are going to continue to, we're going to have highs and we're going to have lows within the history and, and, and the, the linear kind of walking out of this thing called the church in this world until Jesus comes back and brings a new heaven and a new earth. And yet we see this kind of military kind of zeal rise up in the evangelical church, birthed out of anger and frustration. Jesus, save us. Return us to the way it was, as though the way it was was some kind of Eden. What Jesus does next in this moment demands our attention. Because what Jesus does next in this moment is going to help us process what we do today in this cultural moment we find ourselves in. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You know, the, the significance of this moment here is, is multifaceted. And, 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 you know, part of this moment is he's fulfilling prophecy, the prophecy that's found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But it's more than that. More profound than just simply fulfilling prophecy is the reason why he's fulfilling this prophecy. You know, if we go on in Zechariah, it's not mentioned within John's gospel, but if you go back to Zechariah and read the next verse, what does it say? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rules shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Bruce Milne writes, 
faced with the nationalistic politicization of the messianic title, as he had been in Galilee, Jesus again takes corrective action. In Galilee, he withdrew into the hills. In Jerusalem, he mounts a donkey. Now, the donkey is significant. Let, let me read to you from the, the commentary of, of uh, William Barclay. He says, The point is that a, a king came riding upon a horse when he was intent on war. He came riding upon a donkey when he was coming in peace. This action of Jesus is a sign that he was not the warrior figure that people dreamed of, but the Prince of Peace. No one saw it that way at the time. Not even the disciples who should have known so much better. The minds of all were filled with a kind of mass hysteria. Here was the one who was to come. But they looked for the Messiah of their own dreams and their own wishful thinking. They did not look for the Messiah whom God had sent. Jesus drew a dramatic picture of what he claimed to be, but none understood the claim. You know, Jesus is refusing the role of a politicized, nationalistic, uh, military, military leader in this moment. And I want you to consider this. We, we talked about the psychology of the crowd. In, in declining this role, the same crowd that's crying out, Hosanna, save us now, save us, we pray, will be screaming out the words, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But this leaves us with a question, why? Why, if, if Israel is God's chosen people as a nation, you know, the Messiah was to come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the lineage of, of King David, why, why is Jesus not taking this kind of national title in this moment? And it's because he's seeing something that the rest of us aren't seeing. Because his perspective is so much greater than our perspective. His plan for humanity goes beyond the small, underwhelming, short-sighted perspective of the human condition. The day of his coming on a white horse surrounded by angel armies, that's yet to come. But today is not that day. Today he comes in humility, in peace, as a sacrificial lamb being led to the slaughter for the sake of humanity. In this act, he rebrands in the minds of those of the first century and in our minds here today in this moment. He rebrands who the Messiah is and how we are to follow him in this life. In this act, he demands that we shift our ideological perspective about who God should be and how we should act in this world. In this act, he loses the crowd and he gains a remnant. A few who say yes to a shift in their perspective to come into alignment with a biblical worldview and not the view of the world around us. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came uh, after Jesus was glorified that they began to put two and two together and understand what is happening and what had happened as they had witnessed it. But in the moment they missed it, they were caught up with the crowd. They were caught up with the psychology of the buzz and the excitement and the expectation. I pray that that same Holy Spirit will give us a revelation 
of the kind of kingdom Jesus ushered in as Messiah. Because yes, the day of justice and vengeance against his enemies will come, but today is not that day. And he alone carries that role when that day does come. Today he calls you to follow him, to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, to live self-sacrificially. Friends, anytime we start getting caught up in movements and moments that are based in frustration and anger and bitterness, those pursuits are never, they're never the pursuits of the Spirit in our lives. Today, He calls you to follow His lead, to pick up your cross, and to follow Him. And in that way, we can pray, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Save our neighbors, we pray. Save this world, we pray. But we, we, we pray it with His eternal perspective. Because it's not about this nation. It's not about America. It's not even just about Israel, God's people. It's about this world. And he calls us to join in that perspective and in that mission of serving the world around us. So when you get frustrated, when you get angry, when you have moments where instead of grieving what we've lost, you start to get frustrated and angry towards the world around you, please be reminded that Jesus himself, when he was mocked and beaten and betrayed, made the decision in that moment not to be, get bitter, not to get angry, but rather sacrifice himself in love so he could save that world. So Lord, today, as we kind of evaluate Christianity around us. Lord, we're sorry for what it has become in the Western world. This, this angry, politicized, nationalistic thing that, that, that your kingdom isn't. Well, your kingdom is open for all. Your kingdom is uh, it's so profoundly different than anything that we create. Lord, would you forgive us for our anger and our frustration? Would you forgive us for idealizing the past as though it was some kind of utopia, some kind of Eden? Lord, we recognize that it was as broken then as it is today and we still need you desperately. And we look forward to the day when you, when you do set up a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. But that day isn't today. We long for it, we look towards it. But in the meantime, God, would you help us to align our hearts around a biblical worldview, around serving others, around being agents of peace and love, examples of joy and missional people. In this world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I did want to close with a caveat. Uh, Pastor Marcus uh, said the other day, uh, don't, hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. 
And so I do want to close with a caveat because sometimes we can hear a sermon like this and, and we kind of make some big blanket statements. And what I don't mean to say is don't get involved in politics. Don't get in. That is not what I'm saying. I vote. I do my research. I do my due diligence. I, 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 when I feel strongly about something and I want to get involved, this isn't about being involved in the political arena or in the movements of the culture around us or in social issues. It's not about that. It's about the motivations of our heart and what kind of drives us to pursue. And I hope that the motivation of your heart is simply to serve your master, to serve your Messiah in the way that he modeled servanthood in this world. God bless everyone. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Lucas, for that message and just what the triumphal entry means for us today and the truth that's contained there. Well, we have just a couple announcements for you today. The first one is, uh, I can't believe that we're already making this announcement, but Christmas is coming, whether you want to believe it or not. And so we actually have an opportunity for our kids to help out with part of our Christmas Eve service. Now, it won't actually be uh, part of the service itself, but will be a little bit of a creative um, filming prior to it and pictures before. And so if you want to get involved with our Christmas Eve service and you have a kid all the way from like grade one up until grade 12, uh, feel free to contact Pastor Lisa here at the office and she would love to give you some more information on what that looks like. And then if what we do here adds value to your faith and you want to support the everyday work that we do here at Evangel, we would really, really appreciate your partnership in giving. All that we do uh, is through your generosity and so every penny counts. If you want to give, if you, you can go to myevangel.church forward slash give and it will give you all the ways that you can do that. Well, thanks friends so much for joining us and we will see you again next week.